Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 82, The Sucker Punch. So, a new year and a new episode of the History of England. How good is that? By the way, I've posted a map of Scotland on the website to help us negotiate the inevitable coverage of Scotland over the next couple of decades. So, it's a while ago, but we left Edward I feeling very good. He'd proved himself to be the lord of the complete British Isles and was feeling rather smug about the way he'd done it ruthlessly exploiting Scottish misfortune. So, in 1293, his thoughts turned back to his real ambition, the Crusade. The last vestige of Outremer had been rubbed out in 1291, so maybe now was the time to restart that much-delayed Crusade. Wales was cowed. Scotland had submitted. Everything seemed cool with France and Gascony. So, sure as eggs is eggs now would be a good time to pick up all that money the church had been gathering for this very purpose and head for glory and fame. The wave of strife that would now sweep over Edward started with just a ripple. News arrived on the 15th of May 1293 that English and Gascon ships had been attacked by a group of Norman ships. Nothing to do with us, Gov. We was just sailing along when they came out of nowhere, as it were. As it happens, the Normans were given a good spanking and sent on their way, and for good measure, the Gascons used the occasion to give the French town of La Rochelle a bit of a sacking, as you do. Philip the Fair of France was in there like a rat up a drain, demanding restitution. Now Edward might just have responded with a, you started it, but clearly took the incident seriously. Nonetheless, he would have felt pretty relaxed. There would surely be a way through this, and he was prepared to negotiate. He proposed three routes. He could do justice in England and let Philip know the result, or they could set up a joint Anglo-French commission to decide what happened, or they could put the thing to the Pope's arbitration. So Edward's gob was well and truly smacked when he learnt that all three of these infinitely reasonable proposals had been summarily rejected. The French, bless him, had taken a traditionally French view of the whole thing, i.e. that since the English were irrelevant little worms, scarcely worth the dignity of the name, there could be no suggestion of a discussion between equals. But in a feudal context, Edward was merely a vassal of the French, and he should agree to hand over Bordeaux and the Agenais and present himself forthwith in Paris for judgment. This was not a discussion between equals. As far as Philip was concerned, the only reason Edward could possibly have to delay would be to make sure he had enough time to knit himself a suitably protective cover for his backside. Life can be cruelly ironic, can it not? Because, as luck would have it, exactly the same thing was going on in Edward's court. 
King John Balliol of Scotland was in the process of earning his nickname in Scotland, Toom Tabard, or Empty Trousers, or, as we might say in modern parlance, all fur coat and no knickers. Edward was keen to make sure he reinforced the point that he was now boss, so he'd carefully laid his head down on the line to be able to look right along it, and made darn sure that as soon as the faintest suspicion of a mailed foot edged over it, he'd bring the mace of justice down with a crash. So what had happened was that some Scottish earls had appealed to Edward as the feudal overlord, and Balliol had ignored that appeal and gone ahead and made a judgment anyway. And so Balliol was duly summoned to an English parliament to answer why. Poor old Doom Tabard. I have to say my heart goes out to the lad. He was in the most hideously nasty situation. Rock and hard place, Scylla and Charybdis, Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. So he came into Parliament determined to tough it out. I am the King of Scotland, and I dare not answer anything concerning my kingdom without the advice of the responsible men of my realm. Roughly translated as, talk to the hand, the face ain't listening. But the response was a gale of fury from Edward. Balliol was, in the words of a chronicler, like a lamb among the wolves. Predictably, Balliol bottled it and caved in. Edward rubbed a bit of salt in his wounds by confiscating three of his castles. Now I reckon that Edward was just keen to exercise his rights, to demonstrate that they existed, rather than allowing them to leak away as they'd done before. But this strategy led direct to confrontation. He was really rubbing Scottish noses in it. And I've always wondered what would have happened if Edward had been rather more circumspect and a bit gentler, a bit less obvious about Scotland's change of status. But anyway, ifs, buts and maybes, he didn't. So, back to the French problem. What exactly was Philip playing at? And to answer that question, we need a little digression into European politics. Philip came to the throne in 1285 at the age of 17 and would rule France until his death in 1314. The general story of his reign was about extending the power and authority of the French monarchy. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh wow, so there's something new then. And you're thinking this with a deal of sarcasm. But the point is that Philip was an effective ruler and diplomat, and even Edward would find out just how effective he was. By the time 1293 had rolled around, Philip was growing in confidence and more than ready to take on a man who probably viewed him slightly patronisingly as just a lad. England, however, was not Philip's main target. That honour went to the papacy. Because while Philip was clearly a pious man, he was also determined to limit the temporal power of the papacy. In particular, he wanted to be able to tax the vastly wealthy French church to pay for his wars, and he wanted to stop papal taxes from leaving the country. Now, the 14th and 15th century will often be distressingly depressing times if you're lovers of the papacy, a time when too often the papacy becomes a corrupt pawn in power struggles between the princes of Europe. Well, Philip IV has a role to play in that story. Because on the death of Pope Nicholas in 1292, Philip and Charles of Sicily slogged it out in the College of Cardinals to select the best replacement. The result was an interregnum of 27 months, when the Cardinals made the cardinal error, ha-ha, of electing a genuinely pious man to the Papal See, 
Not a mistake, they were to repeat often, it has to be said. But when that little experiment was over, in 1295, Pope Boniface arrived. A man as determined to see the whole of Europe bend the knee to the Pope, as Philip was to see the French monarchy lord it over the church and papacy. One of Boniface's most famous quotations was, It is necessary for salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. I'm sure you'll agree that it's best to aim high. As far as Boniface was concerned, the game was every bit as interesting as the ends, so he meddled and played politics for all he was worth, just in the way that Alexander VI, otherwise known as Rodrigo Borgia, and other Renaissance popes would do. So, back to Edward and Philip, and just bear the context and background in mind. Philip is determined to build the power of the French monarchy, so that means sticking it to the Duke of Gascony, even if he is also the King of England. It also means curbing the power of the Church in France, to which end he's fighting a battle to control the Pope. Edward, meanwhile, just hadn't caught up. As far as he was concerned, Philip was family. His father, Louis IX, had married his mother's sister, for crying out loud. It must be some mistake, a case of miscommunication. Unfortunately, Robert Burnell, the most experienced of Edward's advisers, was dead, so instead, Edward sent his brother Edmund Crouchback, Earl of Lancaster, over to Paris to sort things out, in the summer of 1293. Edmund took more family with him. His own wife's daughter, by a previous marriage, was actually married to Philip, for example. And they appeared to be welcomed by an emollient Philip, and Edmund and the royal women sat down together to come up with a scheme to keep both parties happy. Every so often, Philip would stick his head round the door, smile pleasantly and say, Oh yes, it was all just a big misunderstanding. There must be a way to sort all this out happily. Don't worry about all the public vitriolic announcements. That's just playing to the gallery. I don't mean it. It's just for show. Edward, Edmund and the English should really have been more worried. Because in the background, the French council was spitting feathers at the English and rattling sabres in the most alarming way. The king's brother, Charles of Valois, also detested and hated the English and Edward in particular. In his case, it was personal. He'd been all ready to take over the throne of Aragorn when Edward had intervened with his Mr. Clever Clever diplomacy stuff. Ever since he was a little boy, Charles had been referred to as Your Highness, and now he was just plain old Mr. Valois, and he wanted Edward's head on a plate. But Edmund and his ladies ignored the signs, and came up with a plan that essentially goes like this. OK, Mr. Lion, you'll open your jaws, I'll put my head inside, then you'll pretend to crush me to a pulp, but it'll just be a joke, really. So here's the plan. Publicly, England would surrender to the French a range of important Gascon towns, including the main town in Gascony of Bordeaux. A whole load of important Gascon hostages would also be handed over. But then, there would be a meeting between Philip and Edward in Amiens, and after Edward had been given a public wigging and made to look thoroughly ashamed of himself, he would be regranted Gascony by the French crown on very favourable terms. What's more, he would marry Philip's sister Blanche. Bear in mind that Blanche was 39 years younger than Edward, just 16 years old, to Edward's 55. Also, Blanche had already been betrothed to Edward's son and heir, Edward of Carnarvon. 
Apparently she was really, really pretty. Now clearly, as we know in history, context is everything. And this is not at all unheard of in medieval times for strategic marriages. But as we'll see, it's not just their modern chin that hits the modern floor when this became known. There was to be a lot of medieval eyebrow raising, elbow nudging and wink winking. Because one of the problems with all of this was that Edward took no advice from his barons at all. And this surely was a massive decision for the health of the realm that demanded at least a discussion. His replacement chancellor told him not to make this deal, that it sucked, but Edward told him to shush. And in February 1294 the orders went out. Gascony was surrendered. English officials packed their bags. Astonished Gascons handed over towns, cities and hostages to the delighted and probably incredulous Charles of Valois. I remember a game of field hockey when I was a lad. We played this lot from Birmingham and in 15 minutes they stuffed three goals past us. When the third goal went in, one of their players gave this kind of incredulous can we be this good and can they be this rubbish kind of laugh. I visualised Philip and Charles of Valois giving the same giggle. We came back, by the way, and put three goals past them in the second half to achieve an honourable draw, inspired by said laugh. But anyway, you don't listen to this podcast to hear about my lost youth. So in 1294, it was all handed over. And Edward waited for the messengers to come and invite him over to France for the agreed meeting. Oh dear. No message. So picture the scene. John of St. John, the English Seneschal of Gascony, tips up. He tells Edward that when the French arrived, they were all giggling and holding hockey sticks. Well, giggling anyway. And they told John that Gascony was French and would remain French forever. Then Edmund Crouchback writes home and confirms the story. Philip has told him that Gascony was confiscated and would remain confiscated. It's a sucker punch on a national scale. High fives in France, embarrassed coughs and lots of talk about the weather in England. Talk about the perfidious French, eh? The chroniclers were not blind to what had just happened. Here's one of them describing Edward's reaction to John St. John's revelation. The king went red and became very afraid because he had acted less than wisely. People realised that Edward had overreached himself, that he'd been guilty of hubris, that up to now everything he'd touched had turned to gold. There had to be another answer, and there was a fair body of opinion that pointed at another of the seven deadly sins, lust. His head had been turned by a bitter skirt, a flash of ankle. And so we get this really rather remarkable parliament in May 1294, where Edward gets a pasting from his magnates. And Edward has to sit there meekly and take it. And Edward is not a man for sitting meekly. He even has to stand up and swear a public oath that he had not acted out of lust for Blanche. But once all of this was out of the way, his magnates then rallied around him and agreed they'd get the place back for him. Mount the war horses, take your lance in hand, said one of them. Actually, that was the reverend, gentle and most holy Bishop of Durham. Peace on earth, goodwill towards all men and stick him on the end of a lance, that sort of thing. Now, at this stage, Edward is a super successful monarch. Lots of political and financial credit in the bank. So he begins to draw on that credit. But as he did so, the first tiny cracks begin to appear. The most obvious one was the financial system that had served him so well for so long, the Riccardi. 
As you'll remember, there was a system where the Riccardi forwarded whatever credit the king wanted, and in return they had direct access to the Exchequer and Customs Revenue. So now Edward pushed the magic button again and asked the Riccardi for cash. But this time, the engine wouldn't start. The Riccardi hadn't had enough warning. They couldn't provide the cash. Although it's likely that Edward did give them some time to get their act together, by the autumn he demanded their arrest. And by the end of the year, the Riccardi were ex-bankers. It's not absolutely clear why the Riccardi collapsed, but it could well be that the French actually targeted them as well, as part of their anti-English offensive. There's a quote from the Riccardi saying, Everyone to whom we owed money ran to us and wanted to be paid. So, a good old traditional run on the banks. Whatever, Edward's financial system had ceased to be, had shuffled off its mortal coil and gone to meet its maker. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So, a series of drastic measures were put in place to raise money. Wool was the first target. Edward instructed his sheriffs to seize all the wool in the country. No, 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 said all the merchants. You can't do that. We'll be ruined. Our daughters will be on the streets. We're only poor men, etc., etc. When he'd calmed down, Edward agreed that he'd just hike the duty instead to 40 shillings a sack. Better than seizing everything, no doubt, and raising about £40,000 a year, but bad enough as far as the merchants were concerned. The tax was so heavy that it became known as the Maltote, or evil tax, and would come back and bite the royal backside in a few years' time. Now Edward had a hack at the church. He ordered all the money gathered by the church for the crusade to be seized. Up and down the countryside, abbeys and churches were searched by the sheriff's men, chests broken open and money seized. The sheriffs were not gentle and they were not discriminating and before long Edward was faced by angry churchmen at Westminster. Edward kind of apologised and promised he'd put things right. But the church was then told in no uncertain terms that this was a national emergency and they'd better help out. They put their mitres together and came up with the offer of a 20% church tax. Edward's response to this pretty reasonable sounding offer was apoplectic. 
so much so that one churchman actually dropped dead of a heart attack as the gale of Edward's Plantagenet fury washed over him. The result of this bullying was an unprecedented 50% tax. In November, Edward also managed to get a new tax agreed by Parliament of a tenth, which raised over £81,000, though it came at a price. Edward's beloved Quo Warranto inquiry was now completely dropped. But Edward had been able to raise the money he needed. His strategy as regards Gascony was to fight a war on two fronts. So, the priority was to get an army into Gascony, stop the rot of handing towns over to the French, and stop the army of Charles of Valois. Second was northern France, on the basis that getting an army there was much easier, and crucially because they could build an alliance on the northern borders with places like Flanders and Holland. But the first priority was to get an army over there. Echoes of King John began to emerge. The army gathered at Portsmouth, and true enough, a small advance party did manage to leave. But September gales prevented the main army from leaving, and at a meeting, one quarter of the magnates brought up that old chestnut, the our feudal services don't require us to fight overseas thing. Edward crushed this, but again, when times get tougher, so will the conversation. And then, darn me, when the main army raised by all this money is due to sail, the alarms go off in Wales. In retrospect, this is really not that surprising. The Welsh had had to put up with all the grief of seeing English towns and colonies established, constant preferences of English customs. Then they'd been taxed in a way that was quite unheard of in Welsh history. So hatred of the English had grown to a fever pitch, and then, hey, the English had come along and said they needed to raise an army to fight in France. So they'd gathered loads of Welshmen together in large groups and given them lots of weapons. So what precisely did the English expect was going to happen? So, just as Edward was trying to get an army across to France, Wales exploded into revolt. Yet again, Edward would have to lead an invasion of Gwyneth. The strategy was exactly the same. Three armies, north, southwest and southeast. The scale was exceptional, 35,000 foot soldiers. But the result was the same. The key event was the defeat in March 1295 of the Welsh near Montgomery, and by April Edward was in Anglesey and by June it was all over. But all of this while going on was a big distraction from Gascony, and after a few initial successes for the English, Charles of Valois was soon having a ball. By August only three towns held out for the English, Bourg, Blay and Bayonne. Not only that, but the French were carrying war to the English mainland with raids on the sink ports on the south coast. By the way, since I keep warbling on about the sink ports, I thought I should have a quick go at describing what these ports are and how they worked. Basically, there were supposed to be five main ports located on the southeast coast and therefore most likely to be attacked by the French and indeed the Norsemen. The whole idea was started by Edward the Confessor, who was looking for a permanent source of ships, and then later Henry II reorganised it all, as Henry II was wont to do. So, their 1155 charters obliged them to provide 57 ships for 15 days, and in return they got freedom from certain taxes, and held extended rights to administer justice. The name Sink Ports 
comes, of course, from the delightfully English pronunciation of Sank and the five towns where New Romney, Hastings, Sandwich, Dover and Hythe. There's a Wikipedia map on the website. But in fact, the Confederation of Sinkports was much wider and a much more complex thing. So two new towns, for example, became part of the Confederation, Rye and Winchelsea, and these became known as the ancient towns. All these towns were supported by towns called Limbs, such as the town of Tenterden. So at its height, the Sankports Confederation was actually composed of 42 places. The whole thing is very medieval, establishing a network of liberties and rights in return for service. There's another nice wrinkle in that all the freemen of the Sinkports were considered to be barons, so they sent two members to Parliament and were considered to be of higher rank than the normal representatives of Shire and Town. The King appointed a warden of the Sinkports to oversee them, Partially, it had to be said, because the king didn't entirely trust them, since they'd sided with Simon de Montfort. In these feudal enterprises, there's also a strong strand of private and commercial enterprise. These sink ports fought amongst each other and against other ports to win and hold trade, such as the fierce battle between Rye and Yarmouth for the control of the herring trade. Changing landscapes meant changing fortunes. Hastings, for example, suffered from no natural harbour. Tenterden lost contact with the sea due to silting, and Rye had to rely on its river rather than coast, whereas Dover, of course, just grew and grew. But generally, by the end of the Middle Ages, the relevance of the sink ports had waned very much, and today there are just 14 in the Confederation, and the post of Warden is entirely honorific. But this just wouldn't be England if they weren't still around. So there you go. I can now refer to the sink ports with confidence. By September 1295, fever and panic were in town. A knight called Thomas Turberville was uncovered as a French agent provocateur and executed. Fresh raids by the French were repelled by the sink ports. From Land's End to Lincolnshire, men were ordered to stand watch and Edward commissioned a fleet of royal war galleys. All of this panic meant more money, and in November 1295, Edward called another big parliament. I'm not sure I've been explicit about this, but most of the parliaments at this time were still the old model, as it were, i.e. the king and his magnates. So, when the king called in the knights and burgesses, it was a special event. Now, this particular parliament acquired a special place in history through the 19th century historian William Stubbs, who called it the Model Parliament. For those of you excited by constitutional history and the development of English Parliament, listen in. So why was Stubbs so excited about this particular Parliament? Well, there are three things. Here's a bit of text from the writ. The King of France, not satisfied with the treacherous invasion of Gascony, has prepared a mighty fleet and army for the purpose of invading England and wiping the English tongue from the face of the earth. Now, there are a couple of things you might note about this. Firstly, there is the really rather magnificent hyperbole. But hey, what's this? A French-speaking monarch issuing a call to arms to defend the English language. Well, well, finally we're getting to the stage where English is no longer just the preserve of the great unwashed, where the English language is becoming associated with nationhood. Here's another phrase in the writ. What touches all should be approved of all. 
and it is also clear that common dangers should be met by measures agreed upon in common. Here's another recognition that the magnates alone could no longer answer for a nation where so much of the wealth and power lay in the knights, merchants and townspeople, a much more complex society. And finally, there were the terms of reference for the members of Parliament themselves. Previously, everyone had been summoned on their own account, as a kind of adviser, as it were. But now it was made explicit that they were to come to Parliament with full powers to represent their communities. So although this Parliament was large at over 300, it was nowhere near as big as the previous largest at 800 representatives. There are some, stubs amongst them, who saw in all of this a policy, a strategy by Edward to develop the power and function of Parliament. I'm not sure I'm qualified, but I'd argue that while Edward was clear-sighted enough to recognise that he would be stronger by working through Parliament rather than weaker, I'd argue that these are small steps that react to specific circumstances rather than a long-term strategy. Anyway, there's a sample writ of summons to Parliament for 1295 on the History of England documents site should you wish to go and see the original language. Anyway, for Edward, the Parliament was again a qualified success. This time the magnates were pretty compliant, voting a tax of an eleventh without much argument. Part of the reason for their compliance was that they'd lost their most bolshy leader, Gilbert de Clare, who lay dying at Monmouth. He'd leave the last of his dynasty in another Gilbert. But meanwhile the church proved tougher opposition because they had acquired a new leader in the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Winchelsea. And this time, when Edward tried to stuff them with a 30% tax to add to the recent 50% tax, they refused, and all Edward got was 10%. Nonetheless, Edward would have been reasonably satisfied and ready to prepare for war at last with France. This time, though, it was Scotland's turn to distract him. Because it became clear that not only was John Balliol not going to hand over those three castles, but he'd even entered into an alliance with France. So in December 1295, Edward declared that he was marching north to teach his vassal a lesson, and the orders went out to get together an army of 60,000, though in the end it was probably nearer 35. 1296 was therefore something of a busy year for England's chief executive. In January, the king's brother Edmund, the Earl of Lancaster, was sent off with a small army to do what he could in Gascony. Truth to say, this turned out to be two parts of Nafal, and in fact by June he was dead, leaving as his heir the 18-year-old Thomas of Lancaster. Mark the name, everyone. In his place, the Earl of Lincoln took over, but was able to make no headway. But in Scotland, the master took direct control and, quite frankly, did rather cover himself in blood and glory. The blood came first. In March, Edward crossed the River Tweed and appeared in front of the rather flimsy walls of Berwick and demanded their surrender. In reply, all he got was a flat refusal and the sight of some of the inhabitants' buttocks. I hope the buttock-bearer kept his face hidden while he revealed his cheeks, since by the end of the day the town had fallen and been put to the sword. Now the rules of medieval warfare are very simple. If you command a town or castle, you get the chance to surrender, and if you do, then it's away you go, no questions asked, have a good day and thanks for coming. But if you don't, then you've asked for it good and proper, 
and a fair game for a sack. Everyone knew the rules of the game, so when the inhabitants of Berwick bared its buttocks, it knew exactly what it was getting itself into, and it received it in spades. The estimates vary, but possibly somewhere in the region of seven to 10,000 people were slaughtered. Edward has copped a lot of criticism for this, and of course, by modern standards, it's unlikely to meet with the latest health and safety legislation. But just to make the point that all of this was entirely standard. So when the garrison of Berwick Castle surrendered, all 200 were allowed to leave without so much as a kick in the pants. Eventually the Scots would recognise that if they wanted to beat a much bigger and richer neighbour, they'd have to start using their heads and do things differently. Neither John Balliol nor William Wallace understood this, and both of them would pay the price. So rather than withdrawing into the accessible hinterland of the wilds of Scotland such as Morningside and letting the English beat themselves silly against the walls of castles such as Stirling, King John Balliol came down with his army and offered battle at Dunbar. It was in fact the Earl of Surrey, John of Warren, who led the English forces that marched towards the Scottish army commanded by the Red Cummin at the top of the hill. As the English advanced, they had to cross a small stream, which caused their ranks to break up. Aha, thought Cummin, they're retreating, and he ordered an off-the-cuff, ill-disciplined attack. The result was a devastating defeat for the Scots, with Cummin and the earls of Athol, Monteith and Ross all captured. The rest of the campaign was therefore an unopposed victory march. Even Stirling Castle was deserted by the Scottish garrison before Edward arrived. And so in July, Balliol and his supporters gave themselves up. Balliol resigned his royal regalia, and Edward stripped the royal coat of arms from his tabard, hence the name Tomb Tabard. Balliol had had enough, and wanted nothing more to do with any of this royalty stuff. He was sent down to the Tower of London, until in 1299 he was allowed to go to France, and in 1314 he eventually died on his estates in Picardy. Scotland would hear of the Balliol name again, but John had definitely shot his bolt. By the end of August, Edward was back in Berwick. He held a parliament there, and thousands of Scots came to swear fealty to their new direct overlord, since Edward was determined there'd be no new king. In so doing, he disappointed one Robert Bruce, the son of the octogenarian Bruce who had finally died. This Robert Bruce had hoped that maybe Edward would at last offer a Bruce the Scottish crown and sadly he slunk back to Essex to live out the rest of his life until he died in 1304, leaving a Bruce of very different character as his heir. Another point of note is that it is now that Edward removed the Stone of Destiny from Schoon and had it sent to Westminster, where it was integrated into the coronation chair. It stayed in England for the next 700 years until returned in 1996. So there we go. Another victory for Edward. He set up an English-style administration under the command of his faithful Earl of Surrey, John of Warren. And then he returned to England. Now, surely he could concentrate on Gascony and, with a fair wind, clear all that stuff up so that he could go back crusading. Which seems like a good place to stop. Thanks very much to everyone who's commented on iTunes, sent me an email, or joined in with the History of England podcast Facebook site or made a contribution to the website. And as always, good luck and have a great week.